you have your Bible, can you please open to Nehemiah uh, chapter 5. This will be our text for uh, this evening. In our study of the fourth chapter, we considered varying opposition employed by Satan striving to halt God's work. But at the end of the fourth chapter, the people experienced a great victory. The opposition failed. The people remained united and the work continued. Now, as we would expect, Satan just doesn't give up and leave them alone, but rather he employs a different attack from his arsenal of weapons. And that is found in Nehemiah chapter 5. So with that said, uh, let's read the text commencing at verse 1. The inspired word says, And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren the Jews. For their word that said, We, our sons and our daughters are many, therefore we take up corn for them, that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards and houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, We, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren? Or shall they be sold unto us? Then held held they their peace, and found nothing to answer. Also I said, It is not good that ye do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God, because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave this usury. Return, I pray you to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and the houses, also the hundredth part of the money, and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that ye exact of them. Then said they, we will restore them, and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. Also I shook my lap and said, So God, shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year unto the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that is twelve years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. But the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people, and had taken of them bread and wine, beside forty shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people, but so did not I, because of the fear of God. Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall, neither brought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither unto the work. Moreover there were at my table, and a hundred and fifty of the Jews and rulers, beside those that come unto us from among the heathen that are about us. 
Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowls were prepared for me. And once in ten days store of all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor, because the bondage was heavy upon this people. Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Amen. The title for the sermon tonight is Confronting and Being Confronted. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this privilege that we have to come to your house. Thank you, Father, that we can meet in this simple way uh, in the middle um, of our week. Thank you, Lord, for the time that uh, we can spend in prayer corporately. I thank you, Father, that you are a faithful God who will listen and answer our prayers. Father, now I do thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that I have to open it this evening. Uh, Lord, I do pray uh, that you help me to speak um, clearly and speak uh, nothing but the truth. And Lord, you would give us the grace to apply where necessary. I pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. The problems from outside the camp are bad, but problems from within the camp are worse. And Nehemiah has dealt with some pretty challenging opposition. At first there was the ridicule and the scorn, but to no avail. And hence they unleashed the threat of violence, which also failed. And hence it was time to try something new. Outside attacks had been unsuccessful and hence internal attacks were employed. And as one author said, problems from within the camp are generally worse than problems from without the camp. Cruelty from within the family hurts more than cruelty from without the family. Opposition to God's work from without the church is bad, but not nearly as bad as opposition from within the church. Now, the quickest and most effective way to destroy something is from the inside. Now, this applies to all areas of life. Now, there are more organizations torn apart by internal problems than there are external. Now, a current example is the National Political Party. They have problems that have been caused from within, and this will often cause more damage than any other attack. And this can happen to any organization, torn apart by internal problems. And my friend, our physical family and our spiritual family is certainly susceptible. In fact, there are more families and more churches destroyed from within. And hence we would do well to consider the text and learn from how Nehemiah dealt with it. And I want to consider this text under three headings. They being the concern, the confrontation, and the conformity. And with God's help, hopefully this will equip and help us deal with internal problems. So firstly, let's consider the concern. Now, would it surprise you if I was to tell you that the love of money was the root cause of the problems that threatened to derail this project? Now, although the word money is not mentioned, it is very clear that it is the primary cause of the concern that is raised. In fact, this chapter illustrates 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, verse 1 introduces what is a, stir, a disturbing scenario. Uh, we are told that there was a great cry. 
Oh, this word is the same one used to describe the cry of Israel unto God when they were bondage in Egypt. Do you remember the story in Exodus? They cried out to God. And this helps us picture the type of cry. It was one of desperation, of grief. It was the people having no idea as to how much more they could handle. The great Hebrew scholar William Wilson says this word speaks of pain and suffering. It is a complaint for help. It implies earnestness and intensity. And what makes this most outrageous is that this public outcry, which is conducted by both men and women, was against the Jews, against their brethren. It was not towards the enemies. It was not towards those outside of the camp, but rather within the camp. And the problem that prompted this outcry is spelt out in the following verses. In verse 2, we have families who don't have enough food to survive. Parents can't feed their children. They are busy working on the wall, meaning they are not getting an income, and hence they have run out of money to buy food. In verse 3, we have farmers who have been forced to mortgage their properties in order to survive. They need to buy food since the famine hasn't allowed them to harvest the crop. In verse 4, we are informed that taxes still had to be paid, as they always do. And people were forced to borrow money against their property, they used that as collateral, in order to pay taxes. And of course, if a repayment was missed, the property was forfeited. Now, as an aside, the Persians, who were the dominant empire, were an incredibly wealthy empire. They were known to be compassionate in the area of religion, as we have seen, but not so when it came to taxes. When Alexander the Great conquered Shushan, he found 270 tons of gold and 1,200 tons of silver. So this gives you an idea of the wealth of the empire acquired through heavy taxing. In verse 5, there's a sad picture painted and it reveals the extent of the poverty. We have families being forced to sell their children into slavery in order to make ends meet. But they can't survive, and hence enslaving their children is the last resort in order to try to get themselves back on their feet. Imagine being a parent who was forced into such a horrific situation. But what we must understand is that when they returned from captivity... They came with much material wealth. If you remember from Ezra, Cyrus opened up the king's treasuries. All the Jews who stayed behind gave substantially to the cause. Nehemiah received much from the king when he returned. In fact, we're told in the book of Haggai that the people, many of the people, lived in nice homes. And hence this wasn't every class of people involved in this outcry but it was the poor of society complaining against the rich. For the rich were exploiting the poor during this crisis. And this is the issue before us. Now, since there was a famine, this would naturally drive up the food prices. And obviously everyone around them hated them, so it was difficult to trade. 
And most were so devoted to the rebuilding work that they could not remain in their standard occupation. And hence they didn't have an income. And the wealthy took advantage. They offered loans with inflated interest rates, which people couldn't afford. And it ended up in them losing their properties and even their children. This is a typical scenario of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, all through exploitation. The love of money was the cause of these despicable characters taking advantage of the less fortunate. It was the hideous monster of greed that had no boundaries to who or how it would exploit. It was this that was tearing the people apart and it threatened to halt the rebuilding of the walls. For as one author said, what good was it building the walls if inside the walls there were people who were exploiting one another? This was the problem within the camp. And this threatened to do far more damage than any external attack. But what would Nehemiah do about it? Well, secondly, let's consider the confrontation. If we have any doubts about the seriousness of the mistreatment of the less fortunate, it should be immediately removed when we learn of Nehemiah's response in verse 6. It says that he was very angry. But before we turn our attention to this response, I want to point something out about leadership that is seen with Nehemiah. It is obvious that he listened to the concerns of the people and he had compassion. He didn't just ignore it or brush it aside. He didn't downplay the issue, nor did he try and excuse the behavior. And this would have been very easy, remembering it is the influential ones of society, the powerful ones who were responsible for the mistreatment. And yet Nehemiah cared and he responded, as will all good leaders. As one author said, real leaders accept responsibility for the welfare of those they lead. Upon hearing of such horrendous mistreatment, the immediate response from the man of God is anger. And it's important for us to understand that this is a good and proper response. No, anger is not always evil, although for us it probably is more often than not. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Ephesians 4.26 speaks of this. And to be perfectly honest, we need more righteous anger. As one commentator said, there are times in which anyone with a shred of moral principle should be profoundly angry. Now, another author gave this quote that I hope is helpful to distinguish between right and wrong anger. He says, The anger is sinful which has its roots in selfishness, which is excited by slight causes or is blended with hatred or issues in malice or revenge or lasts long in any form. But there is an anger which is righteous, an absence of which, so far from being a commendable meekness, may be occasioned by indifference to great principles and to the general welfare of man. Now, if Nehemiah didn't get upset about this, one could rightfully accuse him of indifference towards his people and being blasé towards sin. But this man, just like Jesus Christ, remember Jesus in the temple, he was filled with righteous indignation towards sin. 
And it is okay for you and I to feel like this. But in light of this, I want to draw your attention to the beginning of verse 7. For there is much wisdom in this first phrase. It says, then I consulted with myself. Now he counseled himself. He thought and prayed about this. He didn't allow his emotions to take control and just fly off in rage and allow unrighteous anger to take over. But rather he took a step back. He thought about the best way to deal with this sin. And there is great wisdom in doing this when it comes to dealing with our problems. Whether that be with your children, at work, at church... Take time to think about how you are going to handle the situation. And this will be a safeguard against making rash decisions in the heat of the moments that more often than not we end up regretting. Now upon taking this brief moment, Nehemiah grabs the bull by the horns. He deals with this problem head on. He shows much courage. The sin needed to be dealt with and it was his responsibility as the leader to do so. And he did not shirk from this. He shows strong leadership. Leaders must be able and willing to confront the problem. A leader is not to be a coward. Before I consider the confrontation, I want to point something out that must be noticed. In verse 14 down to the end of the chapter... We have revealed for us how Nehemiah functioned as a governor. We are told that he didn't abuse his power. He didn't tax the people. He used the food that the king gave him to feed the people for free. In other words, he didn't take advantage of the poor. And I point this out because it highlights that the problem Nehemiah was confronting was not an issue he was struggling with. In the words of Jesus, he was not trying to remove a splinter when there was a log in his own eyes. And we must remember this. We cannot go and confront someone about an issue in their life if we are doing the exact same thing. This is called hypocrisy and it will never go down well. And hence it's important to note that Nehemiah was free from it. Within verse 7, Nehemiah himself confronts the nobles and the rulers and charges them with usury. Now there are four Hebrew words for usury. And the one that is used stresses ridiculously high interest. But what distinguishes this term is the inclusion of collateral. So they were not only pilfering money, but also property. Now, although the text is silent, I think it is probable that Nehemiah would have quoted scripture to back up his arguments. Within the law, it was okay for an Israelite to charge interest from a foreigner, but never a fellow Jew. Exodus 22.25 says, If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as a usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. You know, God had it set up for the rich to help the poor, not exploit them. God instructed his people to love the neighbor as himself. So there was meant to be love, care and support within the covenant community. But this certainly was not the case before us. 
Uh, The hideousness of this mistreatment is further driven home in verse 8. Nehemiah reminds them that many of their brethren had been bought out of slavery already. It seems that either money from the king's treasury or money that had been freely given was used to purchase back Jews who had been sold into slavery during the captivity. This could have been in Babylon or it could have been in the nations surrounding Jerusalem. And Nehemiah makes the point, we have just bought them back and now you are allowing them to go back into slavery because of your greed? Who do you think you are? What are you doing? How despicable. He continues, making the point in verse 9. He says, your behavior is not consistent with who you are. You claim to be a follower of God, a part of the covenant community, and yet the way you are treating the people is the complete opposite to what God wants. There is no fear of God evident in the way you are behaving. And to cap it all off, Nehemiah makes the point at the end of verse 9, what are the pagans around us thinking of your conduct? You were destroying us from the inside out, and they just watch laugh and shake their heads and think, is this how God's people behave? This was indeed a stinging rebuke. Now, before we consider the solution that Nehemiah puts forward, I want to draw your attention back to verse 7. And one commentator makes an interesting observation. He says at the beginning of verse 7, which says, I rebuke the elders meaning Nehemiah done this himself. And at the end of verse 7, he called a great assembly, which means the work had to stop, which must have infuriated Nehemiah. But the commentator makes the point that Nehemiah follows the pattern set out by Christ in Matthew 18 for dealing with sin. He first approaches the issue himself, And then the author thinks the rich were unresponsive, so he calls a large meeting and brings the people before them. So this is two-thirds of the pattern established by Christ. This is an interesting observation. Now, in confronting this issue, Nehemiah doesn't settle for just making the rich feel bad nor merely ceasing their disgusting abuse. He doesn't tell them, if you stop doing it now, that's, that's okay, it's finished. But rather, he insists that they make it right. That true justice occurred and it was all restored. But what he is proposing is really a year of jubilee type event. The land was to be given back, the interest was to be returned. They were to be like the tax collector Zacchaeus. Do you remember what he was like after his conversion? He went about righting the wrongs that he had undertaken as a dodgy tax man. And this was the action that Nehemiah demanded. You must restore it. For if they were truly repentant, surely this would be the least they could do. Nehemiah, the man of God, showed much courage character and charity in confronting this wickedness but would the rich respond verse 8 makes it clear they had no defense they knew they were in the wrong but would they make it right and this leads us to the third point the conformity 
In verses 11 and 12, the crooked loan sharks finally show a glimpse of character. And they promise to restore all that had been taken. To finally show some grace and mercy. And what I want to point out is something that is commendable in these crooks. And that is a correctable and teachable spirit. How easy it would have been for these rulers and nobles to say, we don't care what you think, Nehemiah. The people have signed the dotted line. They agreed to the interest rate so tough. Go away. Take a hike. And yet they did not do this. They seemed to accept what they did was morally corrupt. It was against God's law and agreed to restore all that has been taken. In fact, they even make an oath before the priest, promising that they would be true to their word. They would stop being the problem that threatened to destroy the work. They responded well to the challenging criticism. And yet, despite their positive response, it is interesting in verse 13. We have a somewhat bizarre event recorded. We are told that Nehemiah shakes his lap. And what we have here is Nehemiah pronouncing a divine curse. The lap is speaking of a loose-fitting mantle, which would be wrapped around one's waist, and it would carry varying objects. The visible action of shaking everything out demonstrated that they would be emptied by God of their possessions if they failed to fulfill the promise that they had just made. It is as though Nehemiah had some doubts over the genuineness of the promises, knowing that it's very easy to make promises in the moment of emotion that one has no intention of keeping. And hence he institutes this divine curse to ensure they had to be faithful to their word or they would suffer the same fate. The internal threat had now been dealt with. Verse 13 makes that clear. Satan's plans to destroy from the inside out had been thwarted. But my friend, we must remember that just because it failed this time doesn't mean that Satan put away that play for good, for he still implements it, trying to destroy families and churches from the inside by getting sin into the camp. And thus we must be alert and aware. And hence I want to finish by considering how we are to deal with internal sin problems, both in the home and in the church, for these principles really apply to both. It was Nehemiah's faithfulness in addressing the problem that presented itself. Since he addressed it, it stopped it from becoming fatal. And we too are entrusted with the same task. And here are two points to help us deal with internal problems. Number one, be willing to confront. Having to confront sin is not a joyous thing to undertake. And yet it is our obligation as believers. We have a responsibility before God to do this both in the church and in the home. And yet how often we are far too scared to confront habitual and open sin. Notice I said habitual and open sin. Whether this be in the life of our spouse and our children or fellow believers. We fear the repercussions and hence we don't do it. We must understand this is not a matter of choice, but of necessity. 
Now, of course, we must be very careful in how we do this. This must be done out of a heart of humility, not pride. Done out of love and care. Not because you finally had the chance to really get after this person, to really kick them while they're down. It must be done graciously. It must be free from hypocrisy. Now, don't you dare try and pick out the splinter when you have a log in your own eye. But despite it being a delicate procedure, it still must be done. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Matthew 18, 15 through to 17, the text often referred to as the church discipline model, makes it clear it is a must. You know, it is clear that we have a duty to hold each other accountable. And if we don't do this, we are doing each other a great disservice. You know, if you don't correct your husband or wife, but allow them to continue in the practice of sin, if you do not correct your brother or sister in Christ who are living in sin and you know it, you are doing them a great disfavor. You are allowing them to damage themselves. You are being disobedient and they are causing fatal corrosion from within. You know, holding each other accountable and restoring one another when we fall is meant to be a normal practice of the Christian life. And yet how often it is missing. And may we with God's help stop being cowardly and be willing to confront the open habitual sin in our homes and in the church. For this is what our God expects from us. The Bible is clear in the way that we should do it. And we better be careful to do it the right way. Yes, it will be difficult. Yes, it may not be well received. But who do we fear more, God or man? We have an obligation to hold each other accountable. May we follow the example of Nehemiah and be faithful in doing this and not allow sin within the camp to remain unchecked and cause great damage. And number two, we must be willing to be confronted. You know, if we are honest, this is particularly difficult. No one likes to be confronted or challenged and told what they are doing or how they are acting is wrong. It's hard to swallow, tough to receive and respond correctly. You know, how often when this happens, you know, we arc up, we go on the defensive, our inner defense lawyer comes out, we defend ourselves ruthlessly and often turn it back on the person who has lovingly confronted us. We get angry, we get nasty, we start criticizing, we play the don't judge me card and refuse to accept the rebuke. And we can get so filled with pride that we think no one has the right to confront us. What we must understand is that if we are like this, people will not challenge us and it will be to our own detriment. God has placed people in our lives that love us to correct us and help us stay on the straight and narrow. But if we are too proud and arrogant that we refuse to listen, people will stop confronting and will allow us to continue down the dangerous road and who knows what may lie ahead. And it could have all been avoided if we had simply listened. 
We need to learn from the villains of the text who possessed a correctable and teachable spirit. For possessing this will help us make sure that we are not a problem inside the camp. You know, I had a situation recently where Emma brought something to my attention. And to be completely honest, I was filthy that she said it. I was not happy. You know, I, I couldn't believe what she said. But I went away and I sulked like a little boy. Once I got over my pity party, I realized she was right. You know, and I had to rebuke myself and take on board the loving criticism that she offered. And I had to confess that I wasn't as willing to receive criticism as I thought I was. There was pride that needed to be dealt with. And perhaps I am not alone. You know in your heart of hearts that you don't receive loving criticism like you ought to. My friend, deal with that pride. For remember, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, we will grow to be more like Christ if we accept and apply loving correction. And this should be the desire of each and every one of us to be more like Jesus. And may God help us in these challenging areas. Amen. Let's pray.